0: Hello, everyone. My name is Anita, and welcome to the first ever Care Expert Live brought to you by Care Credit. We already have people in the chat. I am so excited to be here with you guys today. Today, we're going to be answering all of your questions about cosmetic, plastic, and reconstructive procedures. And a little later, we're also gonna be revealing the Care Credit Let's Get Digital Cardholder Sweepstakes Special Secret Word, which is worth 10 sweepstakes entries. So make sure that you stay tuned for that. Now, today we have a really special guest. We are in Los Angeles, California with Dr. Josh Waltzman. Now, Dr. Waltzman is a board certified plastic surgeon and founder of Waltzman Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery in Long Beach, California. Dr. Waltzman, welcome to Care Credit. Thank you so much for being a part of our first ever live.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be part of this first event. Really looking forward to sharing some great information with the uh, prospective patients and clients out there.
0: You know, we had so many amazing questions come in and before we get to them, I think everyone would love to know just a little bit about you and what do you get up to when you're not helping your patients?
1: Sure. So uh, running my own practice here uh, is obviously a full-time endeavor. um, But when I'm not working or operating, um, I'm the dad of three girls. And uh, that takes up a lot of time. So family activities, uh, tennis, music events, all these types of things um, are a big outlet for me. Personally, um, I'm also a musician. Um, In my spare time, I like working on different instruments. I'm currently working on um, electric bass. Um, I also participate in a community band uh, in the area. And so that's like weekly rehearsals. um, And I enjoy a lot of music activities in my free time as well.
0: So besides being this wonderful plastic surgeon, you're also an accomplished musician. So that's amazing. Um, And what brought you to Long Beach, California exactly?
1: Actually born and raised here. Um, I I grew up in uh, North Orange County and uh, my family's all kind of been located in this area. I went to school here, went to medical school in Southern California, UC Irvine, and then I did all my training in plastic surgery and aesthetic surgery on the East Coast, and then kind of migrated back to be uh, back on the West Coast, enjoy the California sun and uh, open my practice out here.
0: You can't beat that California sun. So I don't blame you for wanting to come back here. Um, so did you always know that you wanted to be a plastic surgeon, even from a young age, was that something you knew you had to get into?
1: Actually, no, it was kind of a journey. Um, and I, when I was in med school, I didn't really know exactly what type of doctor I wanted to be. I looked at a lot of different things. I knew I wanted to do something with my hands, um, something to make an instant difference in patients' lives. Um, And I didn't know that was gonna be plastic surgery until about halfway through medical school. Um, You kind of rotate through some different, uh, I guess, fields early on in medical school. And that was really my first exposure to plastic surgery. I was assigned to follow a plastic surgeon and it was almost an instant attraction because I saw the wide variety of procedures that plastic surgeons treated, ranging from um, car accidents and trauma to, cosmetic procedures, to reconstructive procedures. And it wasn't just the face. It wasn't just the arm. It wasn't just the leg. It was like truly head to toe, um, procedures that these surgeons were doing and the patients were happy and they were making a positive impact in the lives of their patients. And that was kind of the initial attraction to the field. And then the rest is, as they say, it was just basically history at that point.
0: Well. I mean, that's such an amazing journey. And I know now you're such an accomplished surgeon. And as I said earlier, we had so many questions, so we're excited to dive in. Um, so a topic that we got a lot of questions and ingredients on was Botox. So let's start with Botox first. And we sure. had a question from Rebecca B. in Florida and Rebecca wanted to know, what are your thoughts on preventative Botox and what age do you recommend starting?
1: So this is an interesting question. We have a lot of uh, younger patients who come in with similar types of questions, and we kind of refer to it as prejuvenation, that there's this demographic of patients could be in their early mid 20s who maybe don't have the ingrained lines in their forehead or around their eyes, um, but still want to do something proactively to potentially decrease that from becoming a problem later. And I think that's great. Um, we do have a lot of patients, maybe their lines are very subtle, or they just want to soften the appearance um, between the brows or around the eye. Um, and I think anytime from you know, early mid 20s on is a great time to start that quote prejuvenation phase of cosmetic medicine.
0: I love that, that prejuvenation. Um, So following up on that, we had another question from Kimberly W. in Tallahassee. She was asking, how long does Botox typically last?
1: So on average, and average means that some people will get more and some people will get less, but on average, we like to tell patients about three months. Um, I do see patients back maybe twice a year for their treatment because they're getting six months out of it but that's really the exception rather than the norm. And I think three months is average duration for most patients. There's also some people who are super athletic, super active, like your marathon runner type, who sometimes will chew through these products a little bit faster and metabolize them a little bit faster. But I like to tell patients three months. I think that's a pretty safe answer for most.
0: So going off on that, we had a question from Adriana M in Omaha, Nebraska, and she wanted to know Are there any long-term effects from using Botox? I know you just mentioned that um, over time, your body can uh, start metabolizing that. So would that be an effect? Um, And kind of what are other things that they can expect?
1: So a couple of long-term things to think about. There's some patients who have been using these products for decades now, because they've literally been around for decades. And we find that sometimes these patients can require less product over time or need less or need treatments less often because the long-term disuse of those muscles actually can cause um, a small amount of muscle atrophy or the muscles can start to shrink down a little bit and won't be as strong or powerful um, in their acting forces on the skin. Um, That's a small percentage of patients. It's not like if you do Botox two or three times, all of a sudden your muscles are going to permanently weaken. These are people who have been religious about their treatments for decades, literally, they might start to see some of that small amount of muscle atrophy in my experience. Um, The other thing is that some patients do kind of develop a tolerance over time. Um, There are multiple neurotoxins on the market. Botox happens to be one of them. There's other products, Juvo, Xeomin, Dysport. um, These are all other major brands of a category called neurotoxins that all accomplish a similar thing. And sometimes it's a matter of just switching up the brand. Um, your body can kind of get a tolerance over time and just that simple switch to it, to a, another s- very similar product can make all the difference, but long-term there's really no, um, negative effects that we have, that we have seen as a specialty.
0: So I know you were just mentioning the various, um, types of Botox and we had a question from a Brandon M in San Diego, California I was wondering, um, what is the difference between hyaluronic acid and Botox injections?
1: okay so this is like two big categories here so botox as i mentioned is falls into a category of what's called a neurotoxin and an easy way to think about that is a wrinkle reducer so these neurotoxins or botox are injected into the muscle and that temporarily paralyzes the muscle for about three months and that means that the muscle's not contracting as hard as it was and that you're not seeing the effect on the skin in the form of a wrinkle so that's the botox neurotoxin category Then you have hyaluronic acid, and that is a type of filler, um, fillers. You could think of as plumpers. Um, and so they're, they're volumizers for the skin and the tissues. Hyaluronic acid is one type of filler. Okay. Material. It happens to be probably the most common type and ones that would fall into that category that the patients, um, might know either from seeing their, their providers or going online would be Juvederm, Restylane, RHA line of fillers. Those are probably the big ones for hyaluronic acid fillers. The nice thing about hyaluronic acid fillers, such as those products I mentioned, is that it's a naturally occurring substance in the body. So over time, it does degrade and break down. Um, Our body doesn't really recognize it as foreign, which is why these products are very well tolerated. The other big benefit to those products is that we can actually reverse them. Uh, Some other types of filler material, you can't, you have to just wait for it to break down but the hyaluronic acid fillers, we have another medication we can inject. And in about 24 to 48 hours, those products break down pretty well. So if there is an area that you have filled and you are not loving it, uh, you can go back to your provider and they should be able to dissolve or reduce the amount of filler in that area.
0: So the next topic we're going to actually talk about is fillers. But before that, I just want to remind everyone here that our secret word is coming up. And I just want to give a quick shout out. We have so many people in the chat. I want to say hi to Mike. We have Cindy. We have Sasha. Um, I want to say hi to Cecilia F., to Marcel S. Thank you guys all for being here in the chat. We have so much more amazing um, questions to get through. And as you were just mentioning about fillers, that's actually going to be our next topic. So we'll stay with injectables. And we had a question from Courtney C. in Mayfield Heights, Ohio, asking how often do you suggest getting fillers?
1: So the frequency that patients get fillers really varies, and it depends on the part of the face and depends on the type of filler product that you're having injected. Uh, In general terms, areas of the face that move more, in my experience, break down fillers faster. So for example, um, fillers in the cheeks. Our cheeks don't really move that much. Yes, when we smile, they kind of come up, but they don't really move that much. So filler in the cheek tends to last a long time. And by a long time, You know, patients should easily this day and age be able to get nine to 12 months out of some of the longer lasting fillers. Contrast that with the lips, our lips move all the time. We're talking, we're eating everything. And so the lips are constantly in motion. Therefore filler can tend to break down a little bit faster. It can tend to migrate slightly to other areas around the lip. And so for lip filler, I tell patients, you're probably looking at closer to four to six months, depending on what type of look you're trying to maintain. Sure. There might be some product left after that time, but if patients are looking for that very plump or full look, they're probably going to need to do it a little more often. Um, so I would say in general, you know, six to 12 months. Yes. There are some longer lasting fillers that it's maybe up to 18 months, but you're probably not going to have that same effect at 18 months that you had say at four or six months out in those areas. Um, but that's kind of a general timeline for the, um, fillers Mm -hmm. that we would inject like the hyaluronic acid fillers. Other fillers like fat, if you're using your own fat to inject, that's a permanent filler. Um, yes, a small amount or some of that will dissolve or break down over the first several months. But what you have after about three or four months is really permanent. It's part of your face now. Um, it has blood supply and that's with you for the long term. So that fat would be the permanent filler. Whereas some of the, what we call off the shelf fillers, your RHA Juvederm Restylane, those are going to need more maintenance.
0: So our next question actually was something you just ta- uh, touched on. Um, actually, A in Michigan was wondering how long does lip fillers last? And I know you just mentioned, depending on where it's injected in the face, it can last longer, shorter. So would you say lips is what, about four to six months?
1: That's in my experience, what we see with our patients, again, like the ones who wanna maintain that nice full plump look, yeah, that's probably a reasonable estimate. If they are, are not desiring that continuous, very full plump look, then yeah, you can probably stretch it out longer. The nice thing is that there's no rules about this. You know, it's, it's really about what you find to be attractive as long as it's safe. Um, me as a surgeon and, um, my, my nurse injectors and other people in the community are, are happy to help the patient and oblige as long as it's not going to be dangerous or provide a look that I would consider to be unnatural or unflattering.
0: So we're gonna stay on the topic of the face um and facelifts is our next category but real quick i just want to say hi to durami we have heather hi jim hi linda i see ruth Catherine, elaine tina and i want to remind you guys that our secret word is actually coming up after this next topic so stay tuned um so our next question and category is um about facelifts and heather g in westland oregon wants to know How invasive is a facelift?
1: So there's different types of facelifts. Um, It's a very broad term for a lot of different procedures. So a facelift could be a, what's been known as like a mini facelift or a lunchtime lift where we make a little incision in front of the ear. There's a little bit of undermining performed in the cheek and then the tissues are lifted up and closed just along the front of the ear. Or a facelift could also mean a complete lower facelift, which in, in, in my hands, that means kind of addressing laxity from here all the way down through the neck. And that is a much more involved procedure that involves lifting a lot of the deeper tissues all the way down sometimes to the nasolabial fold, and then completely releasing all the tissues in the neck and tightening the muscles and removing deep fat in the neck. So that's a much more involved procedure. It takes more time in an operating room um there's more recovery involved um and then there's all sorts of things in between that that's kind of just like the two extremes um so facelifts is a very broad category i think for patients that are interested in that type of procedure i think you really have to talk to some surgeons and understand the terminology because when one one person says we're going going to do a facelift you have to clarify if they mean we're only going to be addressing the cheek area or if we're going to be addressing all the way down to the neck and tightening the the muscles and the tissues under the chin. Um, so there's a lot of variety within that, and that really can affect how involved and how uh, much of recovery there is in that particular type of face or neck lift.
0: Got it. I like how it's called a lunchtime facelift, so you can just quickly on your lunch break, run out, come back, feel refreshed.
1: <laughs> no one will ever know. Um,
0: No one will ever know. exactly. Um, So along those lines, we had Irina B in Chatsworth, California, asking, how do I prepare for a facelift? And when is the best time to get one done? Maybe on your lunch break.
1: (laughs) If you have a long lunch break. Um, So in terms of preparing for a facelift, you know, you really have to optimize the skin first, I think. Yes, patients have to be a good surgical candidate. That's out the gate. So you have to be of you know, a healthy BMI. Typically, we like patients to be 30 or less before surgery for their BMI. Um, smoke, non-smokers, obviously, um, to optimize your health, uh, not have any other, any other major medical problems. But beyond that, once that we know all those boxes have been checked, then we start talking about how are we gonna optimize their cosmetic result? Um, and the first thing is really the skin. Yes, you can do all you want under the skin. We can lift the we can lift lift the SMAS, the deep structures in the face. We can tighten the platysma muscle. We can remove the deep subplatysmal fat to give them a nice contoured neckline. But if their skin is not looking good, they're never really going to get that home run result. So I like to start all of my facelift patients on skincare routines if they're not already on a professional grade skincare months before we do the procedure, if possible. Um, Getting them on certain prescription um, skincare products can make a huge difference in their skin. Blending skin tone gives an excellent result for post-operative outcomes. Um, And then you start talking about resurfacing things. Maybe they have a couple in-office chemical peels before leading up to their facelift surgery just to really remove those dead layers of skin on the top and brighten their their overall skin tone. Um, All those things help to prepare one for a facelift. Um, Obviously eating healthy, Uh, Leading up to that, making sure you have enough protein intake. This is something I talk about with all of my patients, no matter what surgery, but specifically for faces, it's important. It's not the time to go on that crash diet or do like a liquid cleanse after surgery. Your body needs those calories and needs the protein building blocks to heal. Surgery is literally a controlled trauma to the body. It's, you know, that's what it comes down to. And after any trauma, whether it's, you know, intentional or not, your body needs the building blocks to recover and heal well. So after surgery, your body needs that. And so I encourage patients, yes, you have to have a diet that's high in good healthy proteins um, to help heal. You have to like, you know, minimize aggressive physical activity so your body can devote those resources it needs to healing properly to give you the best outcome as possible.
0: So our last question before we reveal the secret word is from Cynthia M and she's from Ohio. And she was wondering how long typically does a mini facelift last?
1: So this goes back to kind of what I was mentioning about different types of facelifts. In general, the more more aggressive or more involved the procedure is, the longer the results are going to last. And that's kind of an overall blanket statement, but it holds true for a lot of these procedures, um, if, if you're just doing a little incision in front of the ear and nothing, nothing behind the ear, only a little in front and lifting up a small amount of tissue and really not releasing all the deep retaining ligaments of the face that are preventing you from getting full elevation. If you're just doing a little bit of that, you know, maybe you're going to get a few years, maybe three to five years from that procedure versus a full lower facelift, whether it's a um, SMAS elevation or a deep plane facelift or whatever it is, as long as you're treating those deeper layers called the SMAS, a well-done facelift should last on the order of 10 to 12 years. Um, Meaning that at around 10 to 12 years, patients will start coming back and saying, you know, I'm seeing a little bit of jowling, I'm seeing a little bit of recurrent neck laxity, um, which is appropriate because our bodies are gonna continue to age as soon as we wake up from surgery um, after any facelift. Um tish- tissues are going to continue to lose elasticity and the aging process continues for better or worse. So mini facelifts, I tell patients a couple couple of years, full lower facelifts where you're really elevating the SMAS and, and suspending the structures and releasing on the retaining ligaments, you should be expecting more about 10 to 12 years.
0: Well, Dr. Waltzman, thank you so much for answering all those questions on the face. Um, before we reveal the secret word, I just want to say hi to Tina. Hi, Carrie. We have Emily, um, Amy, Tiffany. There is Catherine, Elaine. Thank you guys all for being here today. Now, are you guys ready for the secret reveal? We're going to take a short break to reveal the Care Credit Let's Get Digital. Cardholder sweepstakes special secret word, and that word is let's see what it is. Drumroll! It is procedure. Through October thirty first, two thousand twenty two, you can earn entries for your chance to win two thousand in the Let's Get Digital Care Credit Cardholder Sweepstakes. Enter the secret word procedure in the Sweepstakes Hub to earn a special 10 entries now. Head over to the Sweepstakes Hub by simply visiting carecredit.com slash letsgetdigital. No purchase necessary. A purchase will increase your chance of winning. Open to legal residents of the 50 US and US territories, including DC, 18 and older who have a Care Credit card as of September 6, 2022, void where prohibited, Notions start on September seventh, twenty twenty-two and end 1031, 2022 Sweepstakes prizes are awarded in the form of a check. For official rules including odds, free method of entry, and prize description, visit carecredit.com slash let's get digital. Sponsor, Synchrony Bank 17 Election Road, Draper, Utah 84020. All right, so we're gonna have a secret word coming up later again. So if you missed that, not to worry, I'm going to announce it again. So we're gonna get back to some more questions. As I said, Dr. Walsman, we had so many amazing questions and we're so happy to have everybody here in the chat listening and learning. Um, So we had more than one question um, about a mommy makeover. So that is our next topic. And we had Alicia S in Frisco, Texas, wanting to know what exactly is a mommy makeover?
1: I think this is a question that a ton of patients have, and this is actually one of my favorite procedures to do. Um, The term mommy makeover is really a catch-all phrase. And it really, you can think of it as, what can we do to restore this patient's body closest to their kind of pre-baby body, okay? Um, Typically, it involves some procedure for the breasts and some procedure for the abdomen region in general. Um, There are almost infinite numbers of combinations of procedures you can do for that, but that's the general term. So it could be, for example, a breast augmentation with some abdominal liposuction. It could be a breast lift with liposuction or a mini tummy tuck. It could be a lift with implants for the breasts and it could be a full abdominoplasty and liposuction of the full back and flanks with some abdominal contouring. It it really could be any combination of those. So the term is very popular, but there's not really one surgery that it defines. It's more of a category of operations.
0: So you mentioned obviously there's several procedures that one could um, opt for. So I think our next question, Jessica H. in Missouri was asking um, what the recovery would look like after a mommy makeover.
1: So this can range obviously, depending on what the patient decides to do. Uh, If it's, you know, breast augmentation, I have patients kind of refrain from aggressive physical activity for the first month or so after a breast augmentation. Pain wise, it's really not that painful for my patients. And this is just me speaking from my personal experience. Most patients are off pain medications after a breast augmentation in about 24 to 36 hours, um, and just taking some Tylenol after that, um, from the abdominal component, if it's just liposuction, you know, maybe you're looking at a week of some soreness, um, and all the, ranging all the way up to, if you're having a full tummy tuck, then you're looking at about four to six weeks until you're getting back to the gym to do some light activities again. I think when patients combine breast surgery with abdominal surgery, um, I think you kind of have to set aside at least three to four weeks to let your body recuperate just because you're taking a good portion of your body out of commission, The, the chest, the abdomen, you use your core. For pretty much everything getting up to a chair using the restroom showering i mean everything uses your core muscles and if you're going to be operating on that part of the body you definitely have to set aside time so i think if you're talking a what's like a traditional mommy makeover with a full tummy tuck you're looking at four to six weeks until you're back at the gym um, until you've reached your kind of pre-operative state your normal baseline i would say somewhere between two and three months most patients get there
0: so I know you just mentioned, um, you know, having to rest your core. So if we're talking about some stomach procedures like a tummy tuck, we had a question from Monica W in Georgia who wanted to know um, what is the difference between a tummy tuck, uh, tummy tuck, and liposuction.
1: Great. So these procedures can be done separately or together. I'll start with liposuction. So liposuction is a procedure to surgically remove fat from the body. It physically sucks out fat cells with a metal cannula, which is like a metal rod that has an opening at the tip and it's connected to a vacuum. That's essentially what liposuction is. There's all different types of liposuction out there, all different terminology, but in the end, you're basically sucking out fat with a metal cannula, Um, and those fat cells are permanently removed from the body. It doesn't tighten skin. It doesn't do anything for skin. You're just removing fat cells and then relying on the skin to shrink up around that area that doesn't have as many fat cells now. Um, so that's what liposuction is, and that's done through little tiny access incisions that are about maybe half a centimeter to a centimeter in length, um, throughout the body to get access to the area you need to suck out the fat from a tummy tuck is a, pre- a a more invasive surgical procedure that treats the entire front of the abdomen. So in a traditional abdominoplasty, most of the skin and tissues between the belly button and down by the pubic area where you might have a C-section scar. All of that tissue gets removed and then the rest of the abdominal skin gets pulled down almost like a window shade gets pulled down and reattached Um, in the process of that. And the real power of the of the tummy tuck is that the rectus muscles, which are like the six pack muscles that run straight down for many women and and men as well develop this. It's called the diastasis, where those muscles actually start to pull apart and stretch. It's not a hernia because there's no there's no defect in the fascia, but the fascia actually stretches between those two muscles. And it creates a bulge or a fullness. You can do as many crunches or as many workouts as you want. That diastasis is not gonna get pulled back together because that fascia is stretched. So, the real power of the tummy tuck is that we can go in and actually plicate, sew those muscles back together in the middle to reestablish that core. Um, and then, of course, the extra skin is taken out and you get a nice flat abdomen. Um, that can be done in conjunction with liposuction if needed, um, or it can be a completely separate procedure. Oftentimes, I'll combine some liposuction with a tummy tuck to help contour the flanks to bring in the sides. Sometimes the patients will need a little bit of contouring on the sides of the abdomen. Um, it's kind of a myth now that you, it used to be that people would say you can't combine liposuction with a tummy tuck, but we know through research studies and whatnot that that is safe. You just have to do it in moderation in certain areas. Um, and so um, I, I will do those procedures separate or combined together, but they're very, they're very different in what they accomplish.
0: Thank you for that explanation. I know that was very informative. Um, another topic that we received a lot of questions um, on was regarding breasts. So Alexa Ellen Scottsdale, Arizona was asking, what is the difference between a breast lift and getting implants? <clears throat>
1: Great. So this is probably one of the most common procedures that I perform, I think probably number one or two is some combination of breast augmentation with or without a lift. Um, so breast implants, think of this as a way to make yourself a bigger version of who you are. Okay. If, you're, if your breasts are really far apart on your chest and you put implants in, they're still basically going to be far apart on your chest. If your nipples are very close together and you put implants in, they'll still be that way if one nipple is higher than the other and you put breast implants in, you're still going to have one one, uh, nipple higher than the other. So literally implants will make you an enhanced augmented version of what you are. Okay, Um, Implants come in two different types, silicone and saline. Um, In my practice, I use a lot more silicone these days just because I think it's a a more natural feeling um, uh, quality product, Um, but saline implants are definitely still around. A breast lift is very different. So a breast lift is a procedure to elevate the nipple position. Over time with gravity, breastfeeding, pregnancy, all these things, um, nipple position can start to descend on the chest. If it gets to a certain point, the nipple starts to sit actually below the level of the breast fold under the breast. If that happens, putting in an implant will not look proper, the implant will sit in the place it needs to be on the chest, but the nipple will be riding way too low on that implant. It will be sitting on the bottom portion of that implant. So putting in implants does not accomplish a lift. Um, that that's a myth that I I hear from time to time that if I just put implants in, it'll lift everything. Um, that's just not the way that it works. If someone's nipple is low on their chest, you need to lift that nipple back to ideally around the center of that implant, um, to have a nice, pleasing, pleasing aesthetic look. Um, the lift itself does not change the size of the breast. Really. It's taking out some skin, it's moving the nipple up and then closing things up. Um, so a lift in itself, you'll be the same size as where you started, but if you need to be fuller then an implant has to come into play.
0: So another question that we had, um, regarding breast was from Andrea M in Illinois. And she was asking, what are the benefits of breast reduction surgery?
1: So breast reduction is probably one of the most gratifying um, surgeries for patients to undergo. Um, I see a lot of women that have large breasts and they have the symptoms they oftentimes suffer from having large breasts is they can have neck strain, back pain. They can get bra strap grooving just from the weight of the breast pulling on their bra straps over years. Um, They can get rashes and chafing beneath the breast folds. And then you get into just the cosmetic portion of, it can be hard to find clothing. Sometimes one breast is larger than the other, and it's hard to find bras or clothing that fits properly. If they're athletic, um, large breasts can definitely get in the way of of their physical activity level. So um, the benefits is basically reversing all those things. Oftentimes patients will wake up in recovery that have had years of back strain and neck pain and say that it's already improved just in the recovery room alone. They can feel that literally a weight has been lifted from their chest. Um, Now, I caution all patients when I'm talking with them that if you have back pain and neck pain because you have arthritis in your back and you had an old sports injury that messed up your back and that's why you have back pain, you you can do whatever you want to their breasts. It's not going to change the fact that their back has a problem. But if your back is fine and you otherwise have muscular strain and pull because of pendulous heavy breasts then a breast reduction is a really gratifying and satisfying procedure for these patients because those symptoms, like I said, are almost immediately resolved.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Waltzman. You have been so informative. Um, so we are going to go to our last question. Now, I know many care credit cardholders might be looking for cosmetic treatments, and they maybe don't know exactly where to start. So another common question we got, this one was from Adrian O. in Fishers, Indiana, asking, what do you recommend that patients look for when shopping for a cosmetic surgeon? I imagine this can be very overwhelming. So maybe just you know, what are some things that patients can kind of like a checklist that they can go over when looking around to get started with cosmetic procedures?
1: Yeah. So I think this is really important in this day and age. Um, there, This is a hot topic right now, but there's essentially no regulation on who can perform legally a cosmetic procedure in the United States. Um, anyone that has a US medical license technically can perform any type of quote cosmetic procedure. Mm-hmm um the question patients have to ask is is this person qualified to perform this and there's just not a lot of regulation protecting patients currently um and so unfortunately the the burden is on the patients to do their homework and find a plastic surgeon or other provider who was qualified um and the best way to do that i think number one you obviously talking to friends and family personal referrals work very well but if you don't have that connection and you're kind of on your own looking, whether it's online, which is really the most common way patients look these days, you have to, I think, start with one of the um, most reputable websites, you know, when you're looking for this stuff. So you can look at the um, American Society for Plastic Surgeons, the um, uh, Aesthetic Society. They all have their own websites. The um The American Board of Plastic Surgery has a listing of of plastic surgeons in in any area in the country. And then you can really start to fine tune it. Like for example, in Los Angeles, I'm part of the Los Angeles Society of Plastic Surgeons. And anyone who's part of that automatically has to be a board certified plastic surgeon. Um, I think that kind of filtering, if, if patients go through that process, they will already be looking at a pool of surgeons who are already well qualified. Um, I think the the one kind of unifying thing is that certif- certification from the, from the American Board of Plastic Surgery. Um, that carries a lot of weight when looking for a surgeon. Um, that's really the only plastic surgery, the rec- only recognized board of plastic surgery in this country. And you know that if your surgeon is a board-certified plastic surgeon, that there's a certain level of quality and safety that's going to come along with that. Um, And so I think looking online is great, but making sure they have those qualifications and that training background is helpful. Um, If the surgeon does not have privileges to operate in an operating room um, or privileges at a local hospital to do those types of procedures, that should be a giant red flag for patients. Um, Usually if they don't have privileges to operate in a facility doing those procedures, it means the reason is, is because they shouldn't be doing those procedures. Um, And so that's a really easy way also is to ask I think going on their website is important, You know, looking to see what their qualifications are, seeing some before and after pictures, talking to them in the office. Um, and then you just have to click. I think it's you know just doing your homework and do, going on a couple consultations, seeing which surgeon you like their personality, which office you like, how you really gel with them, because not only are they gonna do your surgery, but they're gonna take care of you afterwards. And you really have to have that sense of connection with them and their staff to make it a successful journey for yourself.
0: Well, Dr. Waltzman, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. It was really a pleasure talking to you and having you on for our first live show. I know everybody in the chat is so excited and you just shared such amazing um, information. And I think we all have a better place and a better understanding of all of these topics. Um, Great. Before yeah. I- yeah thank you so much um before i reveal the secret word again we have so many people in the chat and i just want to take a second to shout some people out let's see we have rebecca i see jacqueline there's tuck r from austin thank you for joining us today pamela we have melise patrick monica so many people in the chat thank you guys all for watching care experts live And thank you for everyone who submitted questions. There were hundreds of amazing questions. All of our featured care experts recommend and accept the Care Credit credit card, which is accepted at hundreds of thousands of provider locations and nationwide. So visit carecredit.com for more information. And mark your calendars if you enjoyed this live on October 26th at 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. Eastern. Care Credit Experts is coming to you with another live again. And this time we're talking about pets. That's right. So we have veterinarian, Dr. Jeff Weber, um, or Werber, and he will be joining us to answer more of your questions regarding pets. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Now, if you missed it earlier, the care credit, let's get digital sweepstakes, special secret word is procedure. Through October 31st, 2022, you can earn entries for your chance to win $2,000 in the Let's Get Digital Care Credit Cardholder Sweepstakes. Enter the secret word procedure in the Sweepstakes Hub to earn a special 10 entries now. Head over to the Sweepstakes Hub by simply visiting carecredit.com slash let's get digital. No purchase is necessary, and a purchase will not increase your chance of winning. Open to legal residents of the 50 U.S. and U.S. territories, including D.C., 18 and older who have a Care Credit credit card as of 9 6 2022. Voidware prohibited. Promotions start on September 7 2022 and end October 31 2022. Sweepstakes prizes are awarded in the form of a check. For the official rules, including odds, free method of entry, and prize descriptions, visit carecredit.com/slash let's get digital. Sponsor Synchrony Bank 170 Election Road Draper Utah 84020. Now, I hope you all enjoyed today's live. Be sure to subscribe to the Care Credit podcast on your favorite listening platforms and subscribe to the Care Credit YouTube channel for a new episode every Wednesday. Thank you all so much for joining us today on our first ever live. My name is Anita, and we will see you next time. Bye bye.